Well, this morning we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the scriptures, so I encourage you not to try to keep up with me because you will fall behind. Um, but if there are three passages that you can have your fingers in, one is Psalm 27.4, the other is Revelation 5, and Revelation 7, okay? So let me pray for us, and then we will dig into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we simply ask that you would help us to understand your Word and to marvel at what it is we understand, that it would cause us to worship you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to worship you and marvel at you for all that you have done for us through the precious gift of your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, today we chose as a church to focus on God and his plan or purposes for the nations. Today is a celebration of God and his plan for the nations and really our world. And that requires us to wrestle with what that plan is or what that goal is. What is the goal or the telos that God has for the nations? What is the end for which God created the nations? Or as Jonathan Edwards says, what is the end for which God created the world? Where is history headed? Where does history culminate? These are significant questions, extremely important questions. If you listen to our secular politicians, their vision of what the purpose and goal of the nations are is very different than God's purposes for the nations. In fact, our political leaders often speak of, of progress and history as though they're the final determiners for where we're headed. This longing for a human utopia, of course, without God in the picture. But the Bible paints a very different picture. It's not finite kings, emperors, presidents, or prime ministers that are directing history to its final end. It is God, the Lord of creation and the Lord of history. And he has a plan and his plan is unfolding and it will reach its end. And there are hints of this plan throughout the scriptures. For example, when God calls Abram or Abraham in Genesis 12, he tells Abraham that he's going to bless him and make him into a great nation. But he goes even further. He tells Abraham that in him, that is in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will experience the blessing of God. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, the emphasis is that God is not just the God of Israel, but he's the God of the nations. And he has sent his son to not just save Israel from their sins, but also the Gentile nations. He is the savior of all people, as the scriptures testify. And that's why there's this glorious picture in Revelation 7 of a multitude that no one can number standing before the throne of God and of the Lamb from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But what is that actual end? What does it mean that God is going to bless the nations through Abraham? 
what's the ultimate reality of that blessing? And that's the question I want to answer this morning. What is the end for which God created the nations and ultimately the world? Or what is God's goal for his people who are from every nation, tribe, and tongue? What is that goal? How you answer that question will deeply impact, direct, what you give your life to as an individual, but also what we as a church should be devoted to. Now, there are many ways that one could answer this question that would be accurate, but not fully complete. So let me, let me illustrate this. If, if I asked you, what is the end for which God created the peoples of the world, and you answered... So that one day he would save us from this fallen world, deliver us from sin and death, and create a new heavens and new earth, free from corruption and sin, where we will live forever. I would say to you, this is true. It's accurate. But it's not complete. It's lacking one ingredient, so to speak. The most important ingredient. Or if you were to say... Uh, The end for which God created the nations is so that the peoples of the nations would be saved and experience resurrection life. Also, again, this would be true, but it's not the complete picture. Yes, history is heading towards resurrection life, but even resurrection life is a means to something beyond it, something superior to resurrection life. And so here's my answer to the question, what is the end or the supreme purpose of God for the nations, for the peoples of the world? And then what I'll do is I'm going to ground it in the scripture. So what is the end or the goal for which God has created the peoples of the world? Or what is the end for which God has redeemed a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue? Here is the answer. The end for which God has created this world, the nations and people, is so that the redeemed peoples of the world would see God and for all eternity enjoy what they see, delight in what they see, and worship what they see. Theologians have called this the beatific vision. That is the blessed or happy vision. Now, if this term, the beatific vision, is, fo- is a foreign idea to you, uh, sadly, it's because we as evangelicals have neglected some of our history. For some reason, many tend to think uh, this is a Roman Catholic idea. Roman Catholicism does often emphasize this, but in my opinion, rightly so, because the Bible emphasizes it, which I'm going to show. God has created us saved people from every nation, tribe, and tongue so that the redeemed of God may look upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus and enjoy that glory. It's incredible how much the scripture draws attention to the role that sight plays in the Christian life. Faith is a gift from God, and as wonderful a gift faith is, faith isn't what we ultimately want. The end goal isn't merely to have faith. We long for our faith to be turned to sight. And the scriptures everywhere testify to the centrality of seeing and beholding God. 
Let me just read for us a few passages to demonstrate this. First John 3, 2, John says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. We will be made like him by beholding him. Job 19.26, which I think is an allusion to the resurrection. Job says this, and after my skin has but sorry, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Hebrews 12:14. The writer of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness that we must obtain as the children of God in order to see the Lord. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall have faith in God. It's not what it says. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see see, what makes the incarnation of Jesus so significant, that is the Son of God, the divine Son of God, clothing himself in human flesh, what makes the incarnation so significant is that in the incarnation, the invisible was made visible. And that's why in John 1, one of the things that John articulates is the wonder that in Jesus, they actually beheld God's glory. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. One more verse, 1 Corinthians 13.12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Right now we see dimly, but one day face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, the scriptures testify that the end game isn't faith, but sight. Seeing God face to face. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the yearning of the saints in the scriptures is fundamentally a yearning to see and behold God in all of his beauty and glory. And it's almost as though there's a yearning for something that once was, but now has been lost. There are two predominant examples of this in the scriptures. Uh, Moses is the first example. In Exodus 32, Israel has uh, committed idolatry with the golden calf. And in Exodus 33, Moses becomes quite bold as he intercedes on behalf of Israel before God. And God, in his mercy, grants Moses' requests. But as Moses intercedes, he makes another request that almost seems out of left field. He says to God in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Please show me your glory. Let me see your glory, God. Above all other things, I want to behold your glory. And as you know how the story unfolds, God tells Moses that he cannot see his face, for no man can see the face of God and live. But in his mercy, he tells Moses that he will hide him in the cleft of the rock and allow Moses to see God's back, literally his backside. 
Now, of course, God doesn't have a backside nor a face. He is spirit. But the anthropomorphic language is meant to convey to us that God will allow Moses to get a glimpse of a portion of God's glory, but that he cannot see the fullness of God's glory and live. And we'll soon see why that is. You see, God is so majestic and glorious that even Israel said to Moses in Exodus 20, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, that they wanted Moses to speak to them and not God because they were so terrified at the voice of God, fearful that his voice alone would kill them. And that was just hearing the voice of God, let alone beholding the glory of God. One other example of a saint in the Old Testament longing above all else to see the glory or beauty of God is King David. In Psalm 27, which I led us off, or which I began the service with, I think he writes some of the most beautiful words ever penned, where he says in verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There is one thing David asks of the Lord. Now, if you've read the 26 Psalms before Psalm 27, you know that that simply isn't true. David, before Psalm 27, has asked many things of the Lord, many good things. He's asked for protection, provision, and preservation. He's asked for forgiveness. He's asked God to bless Israel. There are a multitude of good things that David has already asked God. So how can he say, one thing have I asked the Lord? Because with this statement, he's not saying, this is the only thing I have ever asked of God. But rather, he's conveying, as Michael Allen suggests, that this one thing he asks of God has ultimacy and priority over all other things. That if there was only one thing David could request of God, it would be this. To dwell in the house of God. That is, to dwell in the presence of God all the days of his life. And then he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's not to work or serve the Lord, but to dwell and to gaze upon God. David wants, longs to behold the manifold perfections of God. This is his ultimate aim and desire. And this is why he says in other places like Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. Looking upon you, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Now, why does the scriptures use the language of seeing? What's so significant about sight? It's because of what seeing means. You see, I can tell you verbally about our time in Italy on vacation and you'll enjoy the stories, but we all know that for you to see it and experience it, that would be far superior 
than simply hearing about our trip to Italy. We also know from our own human experience that the highest form of personal intimacy between humans is face-to-face interaction. The highest form of intimacy and communion one can have with another person is face-to-face. See, it's good talking over the phone with a good friend, but we all know that it's so much better face-to-face. When I was pursuing Gracie and, uh, and we, were, we started dating, she was in Ottawa and I was in Hamilton. And we would talk on the phone. And it was nice. But I would drive to Ottawa from Hamilton every month to go see her. To be face to face. Why? When I had no money, was I willing to drive 10 hours, more like 11, total, 10 hours total, once a month. I had no money. My car could barely go. Why didn't we just stick to the phone? Well, one, because love does stupid things. Like, I would leave Ottawa at 12 a.m. and get back to Hamilton at 5 a.m. And in order to stay awake, I would buy forty pack the 40-pack of Timbits and eat most of it. Thanks God, thank God for high metabolism. But why didn't we just stick to the phone? Why, why did it feel so necessary to see her and be with her? Because I wanted to see her face to face. Because there was an intimacy that I had face to face that I could never have with her over the phone. She's probably squirming right now. Um, I wanted to look at her for goodness sakes. And I needed to remind her that I was a decent looking chap in case some dude from Ottawa tried to snatch her. You see, seeing another face to face is the highest form of intimacy that one can have with another person. And this is why the emphasis in the scriptures about the ultimate goal or hope that we have as followers of Jesus is that one day we will see God face to face. Now you may be thinking, really, that's it? God's goal is for us to simply look upon his beauty and glory? That doesn't sound all that wonderful. Well, you would only think that if you have a very small view of God. I've never met someone who has spent time in cottage country and has looked up at the night sky on a clear night and seen the wonders of the heavens above and thought, is that it? It's such a beautiful, majestic thing to behold that one is even tempted, dare I say, to worship it. You see, it's not surprising that our ancestors, who didn't have electricity, found it very easy to worship the stars. And then we hear David's words, the heavens declare the glory of God. When Gracie and I were in Austria, we stayed in the area where there was a specific mountain peak just seven minutes away. And it honestly was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been They called these mountains the eye of God. Because when you go there, you discover that this range of mountains actually surrounds this beautiful lake. It's truly something to behold. And listen, all we did was look, gaze upon this mountain range. And we were unbelievably full of joy and satisfaction. 
Just looking at the magnificence and the grandeur of these mountains overwhelmed us with delight. Now, you could spend a lifetime contemplating this mountain range, ascending to the very top and never fully grasping the wonder of such a majestic thing. And yet that mountain range is finite in its beauty and splendor, and it's not a person. Whereas God is infinite in beauty and splendor, and he is a person, a living eternal spirit who is beauty itself. And we will for all eternity further ascend into the wonder and beauty of God. As C.S. Lewis captures in the last battle in the new Narnia, further in and further out. All finite created beauty is meant to lead us to eternal infinite beauty to the beautiful God himself. And when we gaze upon the glory and beauty of God, we'll see a beauty not based upon human standards. We'll see a transcendent beauty that nothing in all of creation can compare. Paul tells us that the glory, this beauty of God, has been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And in his face, we will see meekness and strength. In his face, we'll see a king and a servant. We'll see power and gentleness. In his face, we'll see a warrior and a nurturing mother. We'll see his glory and humility. We'll see a lion and a lion. We will behold a beauty that transcends the Alps of Europe, the Rockies of Canada. We'll behold a beauty that the rolling hills of Scotland and England can't come close to capturing. If we were able to look up into the night sky and see all the stars and galaxies in one shot, even that would not compare with the beauty that we will behold in the face of Jesus Christ. For he is beauty itself, and all created beauties lead us back to the beautiful. He does not merely create beauty, he is beauty. His beauty will satisfy us for all eternity. We will never be bored, indifferent to such a beauty as His. Our hearts will, for all eternity, wonder and marvel at this beauty that we'll see and experience in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, if you've never read it, I cannot more highly urge you to read that sermon. But in this sermon, he talks about our desire for beauty, but not simply to merely look upon it, as wonderful as that is, but to be united to it. He says this, God has given us the morning star already, that is the sun. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more you may ask do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about. We do, not want, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. And I say this with respect and reverence. This is why the lover 
does not merely want to look upon the beloved, he desires to enter into her. And then we read the words of Holy Scripture, where Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, united in Christ Jesus, we have become united to the beautiful. You who were once far off, far off from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1, 3-4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It reminds me of the words in that famous hymn, Here is Love. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man, are intertwined. This is the end for why God has created the world and the nations. This is the end for which God has chosen a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue to dwell in his presence forever and to gaze upon his beauty and forever be satisfied. But we need to ask how. How does God actually accomplish this? How does God allow for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to behold the fullness of his glory and beauty, be united to it, and yet not die? It's a fundamental question that the Bible wrestles with. I mentioned earlier that the Old Testament saints seemed to have yearned for this desire as though they were yearning for something that had been lost. And it was lost. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, what was the ultimate tragedy of their sin? There are so many horrifying consequences because of their rebellion. Uh, They now will have conflict with nature, conflict between the sexes, Conflict with self, pain in childbearing, and even death. But none of these were the ultimate tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin. The ultimate tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin was that they were driven out of the presence of God. From that day forward, no human being could ever enter into the fullness of God's presence to gaze upon his beauty and live. No human being. For sin brings death and separates us from God. And the whole story of the Bible is, in some sense, man attempting to get back to the presence of God, but never being able to do so, for the curse of sin continues to prevail. I mean, this is precisely what you see at Mount Sinai. Israel cannot ascend the mountain, for if they do, they will die. For nothing unclean can touch where God's holiness resides, lest they die. You see, the shock of Mount Sinai is not that Israel couldn't go up the mountain in the presence of God. The shock is that Moses somehow did. The whole sacrificial system that that God put in place for the people of Israel, the tabernacle and the sacrifices, was meant to accomplish two things. 
It was the means for which Israel could draw near to the presence of God and behold his glory, but it was still limited. For the blood of goats and lambs didn't have any power to truly take away sin. And the other reason, it was meant to actually protect Israel from the presence of God. For if they approached God in an improper fashion, they would be consumed. And this is why the fundamental question of the Old Testament is found in Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That is, who can actually stand in the presence of God and live? And the answer is verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who is it? that has clean hands and a pure heart? Do any of us have clean hands and a pure heart? Who is it that has not lifted up his soul to what is false? Have any of us not lifted up our souls to what is false? There is but only one who can claim this to be true of themselves. It's the King of glory, as Psalm 24 continues to demonstrate. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Come in where? Into the holy place of God. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The King of glory is none other than our King Jesus, the divine Son of God. See, he alone, he alone is able to stand as a man in the presence of God and live. For he alone has clean hands and a pure heart and has never lifted up his soul to that which is false. Or as the writer of Hebrews in 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So what has God done? So that we, defiled, unclean, impure sinners who reside across the nations, may be able to draw near to the presence of God and behold his glory and live? What has he done? Two passages. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. Here the writer of Hebrews is speaking about Jesus as this greater sacrifice, the sacrifice that actually can deal with sin. And the writer of Hebrews says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. He did the sacrifice and then through his obedience, he ascended to the Father's right hand and now he's in the presence of his Father. And then it says this, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And here it is, for by a single offering, his own life, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. You need to catch that. Through Jesus' death and his atonement upon the cross for sin, he has perfected 
for all time those who are being perfected. He has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. In other words, if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, Christ through his sacrifice in the mind of God has perfected you for all time. And while you are being, while you are perfected for all time through his offering, you are also being sanctified and made holy into that perfection. Christ has given himself. That's the key. Revelation 5, 9 to 10, I I said you could have your finger in your Bible there. The passage we read this morning. John has this glorious vision. Who is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals? And there is none found worthy, but there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John looks, he sees not a lion, but a lamb as though it had been slain. And that lamb takes the scroll with confidence and breaks the seals and opens it. And all of the heavens begin to worship the Lamb. And this is what we read in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus Christ has been slain, and through his blood he has ransomed people for God. That is, he has purchased with his blood people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And because of this, this the ransomed people have become a kingdom of priests to God. Now, what were the priests allowed to do? They were allowed once a year to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very throne room of God. Through the blood of the Lamb, people who have been ransomed are now able to draw near. And one day, this reality will reach its fullness. That is, one day it will no longer be by faith, but by sight. This is what God has done so that people in China and North and South Korea, Kenya, Somalia, Russia, Ukraine, Vietnam, Jamaica, Ireland, Scotland, Hungary, Italy, Spain, and many others may be granted the greatest gift and pleasure of all, the blessed vision of beholding God in all his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. But here is a very important question. Who are the ransomed? Who are the ransomed? We'll jump over to Revelation chapter 7. Verses 9 to 17. John gets this glorious vision of heaven and really in one sense, the end. And this is what he sees. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number. Let me just stop there. The kingdom of God is way bigger than reformed evangelical. A multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Now, why is that significant? What's the question in Psalm 24? Who can stand in his holy place? And here we see in Revelation 7, there is a multitude that no one can number who are standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Where is this great multitude of people? They're in the presence of God and before the Lamb. And notice, notice that they are not in dread and terror. They're not calling for Moses to speak to them instead of God, lest they die. No, no, they're in the throne room of God before his presence. And what are they doing? They are worshiping and celebrating. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know, no. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And here's the line. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are the ransomed of God? Those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, this is all imagery to convey a powerful truth. The ransomed are those who have washed their robes. Why? Because they realize that their robes are stained with the filth of sin. You only wash your clothes when you know they're dirty. But notice that the ransomed aren't washing their robes with water and soap. No, no. They're washing their robes with the blood of the Lamb. Now, you and I both know if you put a, a shirt in a bucket of blood, it's not going to be white. It's going to be red. But the blood of Jesus Christ is utterly unique. It cleanses and purifies. Why do they wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb? Because the ransomed believe that only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse them of their filth, impurity, and sin. It's only the blood of the Lamb that can make their robes white as snow. This is who the ransomed are. And my question for you this morning is this. Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb? For it's only by being washed in the blood of the Lamb that you are able to join this great multitude that no one can number, that are from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and glory and wonder in the beatific vision where for all eternity we will worship the glory of God and forever be eternally happy in Him. It is only if you have washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb that you get to be there at Revelation 7. As the rest of the passage declares, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. 
For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This, friends, is how the story ends, or you could say it's how the story begins. This is the end for which God has created the nations, and he has given us his own son to accomplish this end. But how do people come to know of this God and what he has done? Well, just before Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, he commissioned his disciples and by extension the church of Jesus Christ and he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is why, as a local church, we are in the business of supporting and sending missionaries overseas to bring the hope of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And this is why God declares in his word that those who bring the good news of Jesus Christ have beautiful feet. The only ones who have beautiful feet, in God's opinion, are those who carry the gospel to people in need of a Savior. That's precisely what Paul says in Romans 10, 14 to 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, quoting from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. This church is God's plan for the nations. And he has granted us the privilege of participating in this plan and in this mission to see people come to know the God who created them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that one day they might behold him and worship him for all eternity. As Piper says, missions exists because worship doesn't. And maybe God, by his spirit, may be leading you and calling you to take the gospel to those who have never heard. He is worthy of such a sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we simply say these words. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for him to return so that we may look upon your glory and be satisfied in what we see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.